Nahum, chapter 1, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. I hope he knows you as someone who has run to him for refuge. We're going to talk about that tonight. We're in Numbers chapter 35, and if you've looked ahead, and I'll bet you have, uh, there are 36 chapters, so we are definitely coming down the home stretch. And thank you so much for hanging in there and being patient all this time. Lord willing, we will finish Numbers or In the Wilderness next week. And then the following week, Lord willing, we'll start Hebrews and we'll call it the Letter of Better. Good things have been given to us and the Letter To Hebrews speaks even about better things. So, Lord willing, that's what we'll make our next study after next week. Uh, For tonight, uh, let me just uh, summarize a little bit. The Israelites were rescued from bondage uh, by a merciful God. They cried out for help, and he provided it. And then the Israelites were really rescued from themselves during their wilderness wanderings. They were, I don't like to say this because they're my people, they were terrible. They, they grumbled, they complained, they went after false gods, they did it all wrong. And yet we see the faithfulness of God in spite of their unfaithfulness bringing them through the wilderness wanderings of about 40 years and now they're encamped on the east side of the River Jordan. They can peer into the land of promise, which they had so long awaited. Soon they will be there, but the Lord has some things for them to be aware of before they uh, take a step into the promised land. And though he is transcendent deity, a big word simply means he's the most high. He's above it all. Still, he's conscious of everything concerning his kids. I hope you enjoy that truth. If you're one of his children, he loves you. He knows everything about you. He cares about everything uh, that comes your way. And so the Lord left nothing out. So at the beginning of chapter 35, I just want to summarize it for you. Uh, the Lord reminded the people that though each of the tribes, there were 12 of, 12 of them, would, be, uh, would receive a parcel of land in the Holy Land, one people group would not. Those are the Levites. And the Lord said earlier on in Numbers, uh, I am your portion. You have been called out from the community, given the special privilege of serving sacrificially. You're the worship leaders. You're the teachers. You're those who are to provide spiritual counsel and guidance for the rest of the community. I don't need you to be distracted by seeking land of your own. I want you to be focused on sacrificial spiritual service. It's the well-being of the community spiritually and trusted as a privilege to you Levites. But you Levites have needs. You're just people. You have to eat. And therefore, God said to the other 12 tribes, a part of what I have given you, I want you to set aside as cities to be lived in by the Levites 
42 in particular, 42 cities throughout the land. You are to provide places for the Levites and for their animals, pasture land. You see, I want you, uh, the Lord said, though I'm paraphrasing for sure, the Lord said through Moses, I want you to do this for them so that they could do what I want them to do for you without distraction. I want you to provide for them materially so that they could be fully invested undistractedly in providing for you spiritually. So that's what's happening in the first part of Numbers chapter 35. It really is a good arrangement if you think about it because it created a mutual interdependence between spiritual leaders and those who are to be led. The spiritual leaders were dependent on the goodness and graciousness and obedience of the people to provide for the material needs. And the people were just as dependent on their leaders for good spiritual feeding and guidance and worship leading and all the rest. And that's how God has made us in the, even today in the community of faith, uh, in a healthy way, uh, dependent on one another, looking to one another, counting on one another. And it's also a good arrangement could you, because could you imagine if the people entered into the land and their religious leaders became a wealthy elite of landowners acquiring uh, land on their own to such an extent that they were far removed from the realistic life situation of the others. So God did not want a clergy so far removed materially from the rest of the people that they couldn't relate to their situation. And so this is the way God arranged things. It's pretty good, don't you think? Your father is really smart. Did you know that? The heavenly father, he knows what he's doing. Okay, so that's what's happening in the first part, chapter 35. And, and now I want to call your attention to something I'd like to make a point of emphasis for the remainder of our time, and it's introduced to us in verse 9. Take a look. Chapter 35, verse 9. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When, not if, when you cross the Jordan into the land of uh, Canaan, uh, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge. I never heard of such a thing. Perhaps you have, but I, I mean, it's a concept apart from the Bible I'm unaware of. Select certain cities. They'll be designated cities of refuge. Why? Well, that someone called the manslayer. Who's he? He's someone who has committed murder. But not on purpose, not with malice and premeditation. Uh, that the manslayer who has killed any person, look, unintentionally may flee there. So a manslayer, I'm finding out as I read the text, a manslayer is someone who has committed accidental homicide. It's a tragedy, but it could happen, accidental homicide. And this person is distinguished from a murderer who's someone who has committed not accidental homicide, but intentional homicide. So a distinction was made by our fathers, see, he's really wise. He made this distinction long before all the law codes, which we have today, are essentially saying the same thing. We still have this distinction, you see, between accidental and intentional homicide on the books today. And the person brought to trial is adjudicated on the basis of this 
very critical distinction. What may God do about all this before we had all these laws and rules and statutes and stuff like that? And so God made the, the distinction way back then. And he made a provision for this manslayer, the person. Yeah, he was involved in, in someone losing his or her life, but not on purpose. He didn't mean to do it. It wasn't with intent. It was an accident. And so God said, I'm going to provide a place of refuge for you. Now, why did that person need a place of refuge? Well, think about it. Uh, you're a family member of the victim. What are you thinking? You're thinking, I'm going to get the guy who killed. I don't care if it's accidental or not. In fact, I'm not even buying that. All I know is my loved one who was here yesterday is not here today, and that guy's responsible. Let's get him. You know, kind of a vigilante sort of a revenge kind of kind of a deal. Not only that, it's not just base human motives that might have led to the demise of the manslayer. There actually was a built-in stipulation in the very word of God which allowed for something called the uh, avenging of blood. There was something called the goel. It's a Hebrew word, goel. You read about it in the, in the Bible. I'm not making this up. And the goel, or redeemer, or blood avenger, was responsible to protect other family members' property interests and bodily interests. If a family member lost his life, the goel the blood adventure, God set this up, was responsible to deal with it, to redeem the family from the loss, to redeem their integrity, their wholeness, their dignity, by making sure that justice was done. And God ordained that the blood avenger was given authority from on high to seek the life of the responsible party. So the manslayer would have to make quick pursuit to the city of refuge because the Goel, the blood adventure, is hot on his tracks. And the blood adventure is just filled with emotion. He's not waiting for due process. He's not waiting for a tribunal to hear the facts. He wants this guy's head. And so God said, I know about human beings. I made y'all. And therefore, I'm going to set up this place, the city of refuge. And by the way, I'm going to give charge of these cities. You'll see in a second, there's six of them to these Levites. They have 42 cities to live in. In addition, I'm giving these six cities of refuge a total of 48. Now, why do I want these cities of refuge to be under the bailiwick of the Levites? Well, there's a better chance... It's not a sure thing, but there's a better chance that mature spiritual leaders will intervene and, and sort of cool off the, uh, the passions uh, of, of the grieving family member who wants to rob the alleged murderer of due process and take his life before a trial. So anyway, that's, that's what's kind of going on over here. So God provided a place of escape, place of refuge, from the blood avenger. And here's what it says, verse 12. The city shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger, so that the manslayer will not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. The cities which you are to give shall be your... See, here they are, six cities of refuge. And look at where they're placed. You shall give three cities across the Jordan to the... Think about the Jordan. It's a kind of a natural feature running north-south in, in that part of the world. And so three of these places of refuge would be on one side of the Jordan to the east 
And three, it says here, in the land of Canaan. They are to be cities of refuge. Why did God ordain that three of these cities would be on that side of the river? Because as you recall, two and a half tribes settled over there. Do you remember that? Manasseh, the half tribe of Manasseh, and then I forgot who else. Gad and Asher, something like that. Anyway, so God, notice, wanted the six cities to be dispersed equidistant, you might say, from one another throughout the land. Why? So that the manslayer could quickly locate and flee to one of the six cities, particularly if the blood adventure was after him. Okay. So notice this now in verse 15. We're skipping a little bit. Look at this in verse 15. These six cities shall be refuge for the sons of Israel. Okay, I got it. Now, this is the part that really got my attention. And for the alien. That's a non-Israelite. That's a non-Jew. And for the sojourner. Who's just somebody sort of passing through. That anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Even the alien, even the non-citizen of Israel, even the non-Jew, even the traveling person, the sojourner just passing through. Everyone was granted access by a good and gracious God. Everyone who chose to take advantage of it could have access to a place of refuge. Please keep that in mind. Now, verse 16. But if he struck him down, get this. If the, uh, if the murderer, if the person who was responsible for the loss of someone's life, if he struck him down, look, with an iron object so that he died, he's a murderer. He's not a manslayer. He's a murderer. The murderer shall surely be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone, so you notice the, uh, the, the weapons. The lethality of the weapons is going to determine something here. So, so if he used an iron object, if he used a stone by which he died, he's a murderer and, and he shall be put to death. And, and, or if he struck him with a wooden object, like a blunt engine, so, so a stone, a piece of metal, something. If he used any of these very lethal objects uh, by which the other person died, uh, he's a murderer. He's not an, a manslayer. He's... This is not accidental death. This is intentional. And therefore, this murderer shall be put to death. So God is telling us, you can determine the intent uh, of this person by looking to the lethality of the weaponry. You know what I mean? He didn't dump a bushel of leaves on the guy's head. He took up an instrument. He's not beating him to death with a straw. He's, he's using things designed to kill. And if he's done that, you you know what his design is. It's not... It's intentionally to rob a person of life. Now, if that's the case, verse 19, uh, the blood avenger himself shall put the murderer to death. You see, God ordained it right there. If this is the case, if it's intentional murder, the blood avenger himself, God said this, shall put the murderer to death. He shall put him to death when he meets him. Now, in addition to the lethality of the instrument used, what about motive? I mean, we do this today, don't we, in courts of law? Check this out, verse 20. If he pushed him of hatred or threw something at him lying in wait. See, that means premeditation, doesn't it? And as a result, he died. Or if he struck him down with his hand in enmity, and as a result, see, enmity, that's the motive. 
and as a result he died, then the one who struck him shall surely be put to death. See, he's a murderer. There's nothing accidental about this. He chose to do it. In this case, once again we read, the blood avenger shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Okay. So do you find this repulsive a little bit? Do you find it a little hard to square with your notion of God? He's supposed to be loving and gentle and forgiving and gracious the last time I heard. What is the deal here? He's authorizing a guy, the Goel, the blood avenger, to go after this guy. Contingent on the lethality of the weapon and discerning his motive. And if he took a family member of yours life, go kill him. That's what, it's, that's what it says right there. I'm not going to tell you, you may not be troubled by this, but most of the people out there are. Uh, this kind of thing is one of the reasons why most of the people, when they read the Bible, they criticize the author of the Bible. They say, this, this God of yours, who you believe is so kind and gentle and merciful, what about all this? Uh, I, I, I mean, it surely looks like God doesn't value life. You say he values life. Looks like he's devaluing life. No, no, a thousand times no. The opposite is actually true. Listen to me. The death penalty authorized by God actually shows respect for life. Now, hear me out. Uh, first, let me repeat it. The death penalty authorized by God actually shows respect for human life. Why? It's of value. It's of huge value. Why? Because a human is not an animal. A human is created in the image of God. Homicide, therefore, is actually deicide. You're killing off the image of God in a person whom God has created. It's serious business. And so that God could communicate the sanctity and specialness of human life, there has to be a penalty commensurate with the taking of human life. Not my words. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Way back. Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. You see it? But wait a second. Isn't God love? God is love, right? Some people say, wait a second. Isn't God? Yeah, he's love. And let me make this statement. The death penalty is very much consistent with God's love. I'll tell you how. It surely shows God's love to the victims and their families. And it surely shows the death penalty is God's way of surely showing love to potential victims. Some people say the death penalty is not a deterrent. It sure is for the guy who got it. Not only that, I think the death penalty is God's way of even showing love to the murderer. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? No, it isn't. Listen, it's not an act of love to let somebody literally get away with murder. Do you know that? That's not love. That's you saying you don't care. I don't care what you do. I don't care how you live. I don't care. There's no love to let someone get away with murder. It is an act of love, in fact, to remind people that they are responsible, moral, 
agents and they are not victims of circumstances. Now, we're buying this line. If you were raised in a bad neighborhood with poor schools, you're destined to be a murderer. That's not a loving thing to say to someone. That's telling someone you've been reduced to someone whose life is determined by your circumstances. When God says, no, you've been created in my image. You have free will. You don't have to do this. You're not a machine. So it's an act of love, I think, when God ordains the death penalty. So here's what happens. Uh, God ordained that the vessel or vehicle by which the death penalty would be administrated is the, this person called the blood avenger, the member of the victim's family. He's the authorized agent, authorized by God to carry out, to execute the death penalty. Why? Because there was no police force in ancient Israel. Did you know that? There was no police force in ancient Israel. You want to know something else? Though they had prisons, incarceration of prisoners was not that uh, frequently done. (laughs) Restitution was. Not housing people. Redemption. Restitution. And deterrence. (laughs) So they didn't have the prisons we have today. And they didn't have a police force. So God said, you are my authorized agent. You, the blood adventure, to exact the ultimate penalty. You can serve as my authorized agent to execute the divine sentence upon a murderer. But, once again, if the murderer was unintentional, then the manslayer was in fact provided graciously, mercifully, with a place of escape, a city of refuge to which he could flee. He must flee. And so here's a little bit more about that one, the unintentional, the person who unintentionally uh, took someone's life. Here's what it says, verse 22. See, if you pushed him suddenly without enmity... There's no motive to murder him. He's angry. We all get angry with one another. We say stuff. We do stuff. Sometimes we punch each other. But you don't want to kill someone necessarily. So if he pushed him without enmity or threw something at him, we do that. You ever do that? Don't raise your hand. You know, that's what you're going to do. I'm not justifying it, but you know, sometimes we, you lose control. That's the way it is. You pick up the nearest thing, you throw it. Against the wall, you throw it at someone. You don't want to kill them. You just want to sort of let them know you're offended. So, so, so it says right there, if he does this without lying in wait, there's no premeditation there or with any, or with any deadly object of stone and without seeing it dropped on him so that he died, it's, it's, it's an accident. While, while he was not his enemy nor seeking his injury, if that's the case, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the blood avenger according to these ordinances. And here's what happens. The congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the blood avenger, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he fled, and he shall live in it. Look at this. Until the death... I thought it was going to say until he dies. He shall live in it. He can't go free. He's in confinement. He's not going to get the death penalty because he didn't commit intentional homicide. 
So he shall live in this place of refuge. How long? Until the death, not his death, until the death of the high priest. That's odd. The high priest, you know, who he, the one who was anointed with holy oil. That's what it says. Interesting. The manslayer is not to be murdered by the blood adventure because there is an insufficient case against him. His was not intentional homicide. Therefore, he is to be provided with a place of refuge. But, 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 but even though he didn't intentionally commit murder, I think God is saying just to show you the sanctity of human life, even if you took a life without murderous intent, you're going to have a long time to think about how important it is. So you're confined. This guy's in a city of refuge. He doesn't have freedom of movement, you see. And he has to stay there until the death of the anointed high priest. However, verse 26, if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he won't be guilty of blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. It's free will. You know what I'm talking about? God made the provision. You take advantage of it or you don't. God provided a merciful way of escape. You go there if you want to. You leave if you want to. If you remove yourself from God's place of escape, you're subject to the wrath of the blood avenger. You see it? That's what it says right there. Now, verse 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Isn't God good? These are principles of due process and jurisprudence long before it was codified in the laws of our land today. So it takes two witnesses. Verse 31, moreover, you shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer. In other words, it's not permitted for him to buy his way off the hook. You see it? You can't take money, ransom, for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. His relatives can't come to you, you know, uh, under cloak of darkness and in a smoke-filled room say, hey, let's make a deal. Drop the charges and I'll send your kids to college. That stuff happens in our day, doesn't it? It's not supposed to. No. Because it's not equivalent. The penalty for the taking of life is not equivalent to you writing a check to somebody. Because that would devalue the sanctity of life, don't you see? And so God says you can't do this. He has to be put to death. Verse 32, you shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priests. You can't buy the guy's way out. Do you know in other cultures in Israel's day, a murderer could, in fact, avoid the death penalty by paying a ransom to the victim's family in other cultures? In fact, the Quran. Did you know you dare not say anything negative about the Quran? I don't know if you knew this. It's open season on Bible people. But you don't dare say a thing about the what in the world have we come to? In Iran, they're on the verge of executing a pastor who saw the deception and darkness of Islam and ran to Jesus for refuge. And that's a crime worthy of death. 
Where is the stinking United Nations? But insult something in the Quran, and every liberal freako will be at a, excuse me. It's, the Quran teaches, Surah number two, it permits, even in the case of premeditated, malicious, intentional taking of life, the murderer can buy his way off the hook by paying off the victim's family. But the Bible, which is not an alternative religious book, it happens to be God's word, and there is no other. The Bible says right here, I'm not making this up, you shall not do what the Quran authorizes. You shall not take ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death. He shall surely be put to death. This is not because the author of the Bible is bloodthirsty and Allah is not. This is because the author of the Bible so values the holiness and worthwhileness and sanctity of life. He doesn't want it cheapened. By giving us, the, by per, letting us be persuaded that you can put a monetary value on the life you just took. A life created in the image of God. So that's what it says right there. Now look what happens. Refusal in that day and this to carry out the death penalty based on due process, including the reliable testimony of two witnesses has dire consequences for a society. Look, verse 33. So you shall not pollute the land. And that has nothing to do with going green. The real pollution comes from the putrefaction in us. Not junk out there. It's junk in here. So if you don't do things God's way, you will pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel." This is not about Israel history. Uh, this, this is about history with contemporary application, because this is just what we're doing here in America. It is very, very unfortunate that today, based on uh, the application of our laws, <clears throat> murderers receiving due process of law are increasingly let off the hook. How do you get 10, 15, 20, 30 years for the taking of life? And you tell me the value of life is not being cheapened. You tell me. How is someone convicted of the crime of murder and then 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years go by, lengthy, expensive appeals one after another, then maybe the death penalty is carried out? That's why it doesn't have a deterrent effect. It is so far removed from the immediacy of the crime, nobody even knows what, what's the deal now. 
He's a 70-year-old guy who took up embroidery in prison. He likes butterflies. Why are you killing him now? But the swift execution of justice, not a vigilante spirit, not vengeance, the swift execution of justice is what purifies the land. Listen, i got to tell you something, folks. Civil authorities, a government that does not apply the death penalty after due process is not fulfilling. That government is not fulfilling its God-given responsibility. And the consequence is that the land is polluted. Welcome to the United States of America. Romans 13, God gave the government what's called the power of the sword. It's a metaphor. It means the authority to execute the ultimate penalty, which is the taking of life. And to the extent we're not doing it the way God said to do it, we've polluted the land. We've cheapened life. Okay. So that's all that stuff. I think we could end on a more uplifting note. What do we conclude from all this? What are cities of refuge and what does that have to do with us? <clears throat> What's behind all that stuff? Is there a greater spiritual application from it than for us now? Yeah, there is. It's this. Just as the manslayer then was perfectly safe in one of the cities of refuge, so also in Christ Jesus, the believer today is perfectly and eternally safe from the wrath of God. That's the application. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the place of refuge. He gave us that stuff in the Old Testament to show us a foreshadowing of the ultimate fulfillment in the new. There's nothing new in the New Testament. It's just Old Testament realities fulfilled and made clearer. It's not a geographic locale which guarantees our safety and well-being that we are to run to. Run to Jesus. Make haste to the Redeemer. Find refuge from the justifiable wrath of God. Do you know in ancient Israel there were cities much more prominent and significant than the six mentioned? They're fairly insignificant, the six cities mentioned. Don't be fooled by showy, ostentatious, popular alternatives to Jesus Christ. Those six cities, there was, wasn't too, there was nothing special about them. It wasn't the biggest, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the business capital of the, it was nothing. Today you have all kinds of personalities seeking to persuade us of more sensational, striking, attractive, dramatic, popular, alternative places to run to, people to run to. But the meek and mild Jesus who entered Jerusalem humble and mounted on a colt and fleshed as we are in humanity a carpenter's son from an insignificant place called Nazareth. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Don't let embellished religion, don't let all the intricacies of man-made religion 
Full choirs, vestments, incense, smoke, the whole deal. All the bells and whistles, all the smoke and mirrors. Don't let it be the basis of attraction. How about the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ? How about come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will be your place of refuge. The Bible says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. You know what I loved about this little history lesson we just looked at in Numbers 35? Do you recall how it pointed out that even strangers and sojourners, though they were not native Israelites, could still take the benefit of these cities of refuge? So too in Christ Jesus. There is no difference any longer between Jew and Gentile. We come on the same basis. Just as I am a Jew. Just as you are. Someone who wishes they could be a Jew. No. Ah, Without one plea. That's how we all come. Level playing field. But that thy blood. Say was shed for me. That's how it is. Anyone could come to Jesus. And did you notice how accessible were these six cities of refuge? They were placed strategically throughout the land so that a fleeing manslayer could find one within a half a day's journey. He could run, if he wanted to, to refuge quickly. He should run. He needed to run to refuge. He did not know whether he'd have tomorrow. He had to make today the day of his salvation because the blood avenger was hot on his heels. And God provided an accessible place of escape, city of refuge, easily within access to him. Jesus Christ is a very present help in time of need. We come from different backgrounds. We eat different foods. We speak different languages. We have different skin colors and genders and all the rest. We're all so very different. But the one Jesus is the one we all could run to, and he's very, very accessible. Anybody could go to him. He's a very present help in time of need. Some of these cities were lifted up on hills so the fleeing manslayer could see them from far off. In fact, Jesus was lifted up, was he not? On a cross. Can't you see him? With the eyes of your heart. Can't you see him lifted up. Impaled. On a cross. For you. For me. That's just how much he values life. He doesn't want any to perish. But for all to be. To be saved. And tradition tells us that the priests and rabbis. Made sure. That the roadways leading to these six cities of refuge were in good repair. In fact, they had to be a certain number of cubits wide. They removed all obstacles and potholes and stuff like that. And they even posted guideposts along the way, and the guidepost had the word on it, refuge, refuge. And then the rabbis appointed a few underlings who they were mentoring to be along the roadway so that when the fleeing manslayer was coming by, they could say, it's up ahead, it's up ahead, go straight Don't turn right. Don't go straight. The place of refuge is right there. You're almost there. That's how it was. We don't have an excuse, do we? We could find refuge in the Lord Jesus. All obstacles have been removed. 
I can't get to him. You can't get to him. He came to us. The pre-existent deity, he became enfleshed and condescended. So he became Emmanuel, God. Where? With us. You see? He's accessible. All the obstacles have been removed. This Lord Jesus has done everything so that you and I can flee to him with haste. I hope you have. Flee to him from what? The wrath of God. Want to hear something that's a little ironic? In order to flee from the wrath of God, you have to flee to God. Isn't that something? In order to flee from the wrath of God, you have to run into the arms of the God-man, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And there you're met with not anger and hostility. There you're met with forgiveness of sin, a pardon. You know what else? Adoption into his family. Yeah. You know what else we're told uh, based on tradition? We're told that the gates of these cities were never closed, never shut. They had walled cities in those days. You can visit the ruins thereof even today in the Holy Land, but not these. The gates were always, always open so that the manslayer could always gain entrance. It reminds me of the Lord Jesus who will never turn a person away. He'll never turn a sinner, no matter, how, no matter how vile you think your sin is, maybe it is, he will not turn you away. Listen to this. All that the Father gives me, this is John chapter 6, verse 37, all that Jesus is speaking, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Wow. In that day, a man, innocent of murder, was admitted into a city of refuge. Want to hear something better? We're not innocent at all. We're guilty of sin. We're guilty of crimes against the Creator, a holy God. And he's willing to receive us in the arms of his loving son. This is called grace greater than all our sin. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Now I don't even have to make the case. Oh God, I didn't mean it. It wasn't intentional. It doesn't matter. Your guilty is charged. <laughs> you sin in thought, word, and deed. It's not the issue. I'll take you. Regardless of motive, Regardless of your heart, dark though it may be, you come to me, I will not cast you out. It's God's grace. And this as we close. Do you realize that the death, do you realize it was the death, not of the man? It was the death of the high priest. Do you remember we read that? Do you realize it was the death of the high priest that brought freedom? To the one who had escaped to the city of refuge. His own death wasn't required. It was the death of the high priest that ushered in for this man an entirely new status. The man upon the death of the high priest could know, can now go free and could no longer be harmed by the avenger of blood. Do you realize the death of our great high priest? Frees us from the wrath of God to come. It's going to come. 
perhaps sooner than we think. Do you realize that the death of our high priest, the Lord Jesus on the cross, has changed things for us eternally, has given us a new legal status? He has taken all our sin. It's so very real, we can't deny it. He simply has cast it behind his back so that it's not an issue to separate us from him any longer. Upon the death of the high priest, Father, forgive them, for they know. Do you know when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Even though we premeditate and intentionally sin, he allowed us the luxury of being put in the position of ignorant, unintentional Goofy people. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he said, it's finished. It's over. The debt has been paid. The death of our high priest has changed our legal status, our lives forevermore. We who have fled from the wrath of God to come by running to Jesus as our refuge are free. And if the Son sets you free, what happens now? Lord Jesus, we enjoy that freedom and love you for it. Worship you. Thank you. And don't want to squander it. We would like the freedom to be spread. It's not political. It's not environmental. It's not educational or relational or or financial. It's spiritual. Lord Jesus, we pray there be not one here today who would not leave in bondage. We pray, based upon your death as high priest on the cross, We pray that one, that two, who knows? Maybe that 50, I don't know, you do. We pray that those folks would, as many of us already have, run to you for refuge and enjoy the fruits thereof. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from confinement. Freedom from risk and revenge. Freedom from alienation. Freedom to love you, to be loved by you. Freedom to serve you and bring glory to your name. Oh God, would you rescue ones here tonight who are needy of your rescue. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.